Chapter 2 Australian Gothic If you've ever had a lifelong battle with a personal problem, chances are you've taken a few weird, maybe drastic measures to come out on top. For me, that was in 2012, when I went to a health retreat that was hosted by a fundamentalist religious sect deep in the southern highlands of New South Wales. I first encountered this retreat when I was living in Canberra. With my friends, I regularly visit the central coast for a weekend away for a break from the public service grind. On these trips, we would frequently pass a sign to a health retreat that had three magic words, a new beginning. Those are three words that captivated me so much because I had been so obsessed with the concept of a big reset for a long time. However, it wasn't until I moved back home, I felt it call me to come back for that big reset. I was out of options. I wasn't working. I was still incredibly depressed. What did I have to lose, right? So before I knew it, I was back on a plane to Canberra and back on a train through Sydney to this retreat, keen to start this new beginning. While organising my stay at this retreat, I was told that I'd be picked up from the train station closest to the retreat, as public transport was basically non-existent. I'd imagine it'd be a luxurious ride as the train pulled up to the station, and I began to simmer with excitement. The train station looked quaint from afar as it still bore the hallmarks of a heritage building, from the region's colonial days. But as I stepped out onto the train platform, that quaintness became creepy. It was in the middle of the day on a weekend and no one was there. No one except for a twiggy little man in a station wagon, that is. If it wasn't for his jacket emblazoned with the retreat's logo, the only words we may have exchanged may have been, sorry, no spare change. That's right, a stranger he was not. That was my ride. After exchanging some awkward pleasantries with him, I get into his messy car, and we make our way to the retreat. Creepily, probably to no one else but me, we had to make a stop at the local shops to pick up something. A solitary onion. Don't ask me why, but this made me so uncomfortable. Maybe like a bad omen. The inner dialogue starts up. Give it a chance, you just got here. Not long after our detour, we pulled into the driveway, where I saw the very sign that enticed me here in the first place. We're here, I thought. And we just keep driving, and driving, and driving very slowly, down this endless driveway. As it turns out, the retreat was not very close to the entrance at all. We drove for what felt like forever into this deep, dark forest, becoming engulfed by the shade of the canopy. It took about two more kilometres before we arrived at this small, unassuming house that was unnervingly nondescript. The inner dialogue continues as I mindlessly chat with Twigman. Not looking like any of those pictures I saw on the website, I thought. Maybe it's nice on the inside. When I walked into the homestead, everything was just dull. Beige, greys, all the shades of white. The doors to our rooms were lined up, one next to the other like a hospital corridor. The place was devoid of any life or anything that would ignite your senses at all. It felt like the whole house was designed to dull your ability to feel anything. Maybe they're just trying to create an environment of stillness and calm, I reasoned with myself, feebly. Before long, I'd finally meet the people who would be looking after us. And it wasn't a suite of slick-looking professionals or the pretty waifish nymphs you'd find at a day spa. It was Twigman's family. Hang on, what? First, I met his wife, who was like Terry Irwin crossed with Catherine Knight. 
And if you don't know who the latter is, I dare you to look her up. Next was their son, who, on the surface at least, seemed harmless. He had that sort of country affability that was cloyingly earnest at times, but when stood next to his wife, his affability took on a very sinister tone. Of this menagerie of creepers, it would be that young man's wife that would leave the biggest impression on me. Not because of anything she said or did, but actually because of the complete opposite. The best way to describe her is that she was basically an emaciated, heavily pregnant child bride. In fact, she was so quiet and she seemed so meek that she was just a vortex of a person. Have I just signed up for a stay with the Adams family down under? Come on, be nice, you've only just arrived. Once I put my stuff in my room, I walked into the living room. It looked like something out of an 80s Australian drama, all floral upholstery and sallowed carpet. I spotted a flat screen TV, but before I could get excited, I was quickly informed by Scary Terry Irwin that it was for special viewings only. Eek. I wasn't about to argue. However, Twigman was quick to add that if we really had to watch something, they had a selection of material for us to choose from. Two towering bookcases of pseudoscience propaganda and God-fearing hellfire and brimstone. I don't remember seeing any of that in the promo material, I thought to myself. As I would later find out, every aspect of the care we would receive in this retreat was based on the teaching of a fundamentalist religious sect. From the days the office would be unattended, even to us as paying guests, to the nutrition and wellness plan we were subscribing to, it was all based in the practices of this fundamentalist sect. Quickly realising that what I had signed up for would be very different to what I was about to get, those two big bookcases became like two pillars. One was a pillar of shame, and one was a pillar of harm. I was Samson trying to hold them up, and my temple would collapse on me if I moved any which way. I essentially became mute, and what follows is five Groundhog Days. Of torturously long, break-of-dawn walks, of coursework that demanded no opposition, of exclusively plant-based meals which was basically gruel, of no external stimulation and technology whatsoever, of the countless hours of silence in our rooms when we weren't doing the coursework. This day, the main thing my body remembers is the five-day tensions headache I carried with me the whole time. It was probably a build-up of unanswered questions, blocked thoughts, and a whole lot of self-blame. I was such an unresponsive automaton the whole week that it actually took me until day five to realize that I'd in fact been sharing this experience with other people. But unlike the others, I had committed to a three-week stay, not five days. They would all be leaving and I would be stuck here by myself. Suddenly those strangers I barely noticed became a lifeline I couldn't live without. Even more shocking to me was the fact that everyone else was just as horrified with the experience as I was. But this fact only came to light when we found ourselves all huddled in one room together actually finally getting to know each other one night. How weird is that family? Did anyone else notice what was available on the bookshelf? Man, I'm so glad I'm getting the hell out of here. Then came the comment that set my unravelling into motion. I don't know how you're going to do this for three weeks. As it turns out, that was all the permission that I needed to have a full-blown panic attack. I went from giving nothing to anyone all week to going nuclear. I was flooded with rage, terror, shame and despair, trapped in a spin cycle. One of them had to help me catch my breath. She placed one hand on my head and one on my tummy and guided me back to reality. These nice strangers begged me to leave with them and I suddenly couldn't bear the thought of being here without these people I'd barely paid attention to. 
So the next day in the morning at the crack of dawn, I hitched a ride to that train station I was picked up from and caught the train out of there. I've spared a few details here because it's a pretty difficult experience to reflect on. While I've learned to find a lot of humour in it since then, parts that hurt are the ones that reflect back to me the other times in my life when I've sought help or allowed myself to be vulnerable, only to be preyed upon by people telling you they have an answer. But let me quote someone far smarter than me who captures where I and others so often go wrong when trying to find answers to make their lives more livable. Susie Singh, who is a New Delhi-based therapist, author and international speaker on karma and consciousness, says this about finding that balance between seeking help and seeking relief from suffering. Never give your power away. Learn to question things. A true teacher will always take the trouble to explain it to you. A false teacher will subject you to authority and demand your trust. Trust, however, even by a teacher, must be earned. When it is given without proof, what they are doing is taking your power away.